It is good to be here this morning, and we are going to continue a, uh, a, a mini-series on how to study the Bible, particularly because at the beginning of the year, uh, there's always a renewed interest, and rightly so, with new plans for Bible study, Bible reading. There's all kinds of talk about different Bible calendars, how to get through different portions of the Bible in the next six months or a year, and so I thought it would be good to pause our study on First Thessalonians and uh, take a little bit of time to, uh, to, to focus on some really helpful principles that will guide you in, in the faithful study of Scripture. Uh, I had wanted to do this in two weeks. Uh, last Sunday, we uh, looked at not as many principles as I had wanted to, and my son told me later, he said, Dad, when you said you were going to get through seven points in one Sunday and the next seven the next week. That's not going to work. So I took my son's preaching advice, <laughs> and uh, we probably won't get through it all, uh, the remaining part of it, uh, to today. We'll extend it a little bit, uh, and especially with my voice, don't want to press it too much. Uh, but we want to continue this, and, and just to quickly review the previous points, so these, 14, or these 13 uh, practical steps that I want to emphasize to you as you, the first four that we looked at last week are these. Number one, acknowledge your need for truth. Acknowledge your need for truth. Bible study without the passion and the hunger and the desire is just a ritual. It doesn't make you better. Uh, it, it, it won't uh, make you in a, in a, put you in a better standing with God. There needs to be a hunger for the Word of God. There needs to be the recognition that man and woman, they, they do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it starts there, and that's where you need to work first. If the passion and the hunger isn't there, pray for it. And that is a prayer that is certainly within the will of God. Pray for your need or your hunger for truth. Number two, pray also for divine assistance. And that relates more specifically to your day-to-day act with respect to Bible reading and Bible study, that we don't do this on the basis of human wisdom and effort alone. This isn't something that is going to be accomplished by man's power. This is something that needs divine enablement. It's not because the Bible is somehow insufficient. It's because we as readers are. And, it's, and it is the Lord who provides us, through His Spirit, the, the understanding, the capacity that we need to rightly handle the Word of God. So we looked at that second step. Anytime when you come to the Word, your whole study is bathed in this constant awareness of your need for the Lord to open your eyes and to give you understanding. Number three, we emphasize the need for a, a right translation, a translation that is going to uh, give you the rendering of the original Hebrew and the original Greek. Uh, we mentioned that, you know, paraphrases, uh, those looser translations may have a role to play in someone who's barely literate or has no background of, of understanding in the Bible and that initial uh, kind of reading in a paraphrase may be very helpful, but when it comes down to a very detailed and careful study where that study is really forming 
your understanding of God at a deep way, you want a literal translation that is going to most faithfully accurate or faithfully represent the original. And then number four, we emphasize the importance of reading the whole book. Uh, we uh, are this. We have this generation today that just skips around and can only deal with very little short bites of things of information. We've been uh, conditioned to that, and that has that has carried over into many many people and their their Bible reading habits. And so the idea here is is that when you begin to read, have a plan to start at the beginning of biblical books and you read through to the end. Now, that may be in one sitting. Uh, I I didn't mention this last time, but sometimes uh, there is an an amazing understanding that comes when you put everything else aside and you take a book like Romans or a book like Acts or Matthew or the Gospel of John and you read through it start to finish in one sitting. All of a sudden, things that seem to be piecemeal before, as you read in those different books, all of a sudden fit together. But even beyond that, in your reading of the Bible, it is important to finish what you start. So you begin and one finish the book that you are in. Now with that said, I want to continue to look at these 13 principles, and we'll see how many we get through this morning. But the fifth one is, is this. This is new for this morning. The fifth one is this. Consider the book's background. Consider the book's historical background, the, the world in which it came to be. And this, is, this is important, and, and this is uh, important especially for going the next step in, in Bible study. Perhaps you had one of these one-year Bibles, and you're looking through that, and that is, that is great. And now you may be wondering, okay, how do I go to the next step? How do I take it deeper and improve my understanding in this fifth principle is very important. Take the step to study the book's background. And here's the principle behind that. The faithful study of scripture requires an awareness of the, the writer and his original audience. Now, I can't emphasize this enough because as, as you know, in this, in this day and age, we are so self-centered. We are me-centered. Anthropocentric is what we call this, this generation. Everything revolves around me. And that even carries over into Bible reading, so that in Bible reading, people will approach the scriptures, and, and what is the, the starting point for them? The starting point for them is their circumstance. The starting point for them is their particular felt need. And they look to the scriptures, and, and their immediate initial thought is, this word needs to speak to me. And when that takes place, especially over and over again, it leads to a lot of false interpretations, a lot of forcing the text of Scripture to deal with my circumstance. And and if it doesn't, it leads to a lot of disappointment. Why doesn't the Bible address my need that I have right now? And what we need to do is make a radical shift and realize the first issue of importance isn't my circumstance. Now, that's not to say it's unimportant. The Word of God is living and active, and it will have its role to play, and it must have its role to play in your life. The Scriptures are always relevant. But they are relevant and do their best work when we go through the proper process whereby we start not with ourselves, but with the 
original context. And that's why it is so important to take time in your study of Scripture to delve into the world of the author and his initial audience. Now, what does this world look like? What are the things that you you look for as you seek to build this picture of, of the author, his audience, and the circumstances that he and his audience were dealing with? Let me give you five simple things to consider. Some of these issues are not equally important. Some of them are not equally important to each book. In some cases, we don't know some of this information. Nonetheless, these are five coat hangers, you could say, that that help you understand what is involved when we talk about the world around the writer and his audience. First of all, the author. Who wrote the book? Who wrote the book? It does matter that someone like Matthew, a, a tax collector, wrote the gospel of Matthew. That that helps, or Luke, a, a Gentile physician, wrote Luke and Acts. Paul, a, uh, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, was the one to write Galatians and, and Romans. So take a moment and consider, do I know the author of this work? And, and then not just that, but what more can I glean about him and his life before I start the actual detailed study of the work that he has written. Number two, the date. When did he write? Now again, uh, we can't pinpoint this in a lot of cases with certitude, with exactness. Well, it was in this month and this year. We can't do that in in many cases, but we can have an approximate time. Uh, So for example, with Daniel, when did Daniel write? And that is important because Daniel includes such detailed prophecies of future things that were going to happen after his life, according to a proper dating of his life, 6th century BC. He was writing after the fact. Same thing with the book of Revelation. When did John write that last book of our our canon? That's an important question, and it's going to affect things later on. It's going to affect what you might read in a commentary When did John write the book of Revelation? When did Paul write Thessalonians? We've been going through Thessalonians, looking forward to getting back into chapter 5 soon. Uh, But when did Paul write Thessalonians? And when you you take a little bit of time and and you put the study in and you read a little bit and you realize, wait a minute, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians just about six months after the church had been planted. That gives you then a tremendous appreciation for the Thessalonian church and the issues which Paul addresses in the letter. Number three, the location. From where did the author write? So when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1, he says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Where was Paul writing from? And the answer is he's writing from house arrest in Rome, and that helps us understand why he chooses to use that term prison, and then it gives us a much greater appreciation for how Paul addresses the issues that he does in his letter. Number four, recipient. To whom did he write? To whom did he write? So when Paul writes Philemon about Onesimus, What can we gather from that letter about who Philemon 
was. Or when Paul write, or when, when John writes Gaius, third John, who's this Gaius character and, and his circumstance? Or in a broader sense, when, when, when Paul writes the Thessalonians, who were the Thessalonians or the Philippians or the Corinthians? Those are all helpful factors that if we gain a little bit of, of understanding, a little bit of a broader picture, it will help us in more of the detailed understanding of specific texts. And then number five, this is really important. Why did he write? Why did he write? It's a, a, a massively important issue. Why did Matthew write his gospel? You might not have ever thought about that in, in detail, but the more that you do research and, and study that, and gain a, a, a better understanding of why Matthew wrote, then when you get into the more detailed reading of the text, all of a sudden, the way that Matthew makes, the reasons why he includes certain things that, that Luke doesn't, then all of a sudden it begins to make sense. Ah, I see, Matthew wrote to Jews. Luke was writing to a Gentile official named Theophilus. There's, there's a different audience, and, and then there's not just that, but a different purpose be, behind what those audiences needed. So ask those questions. Who wrote it? When? From where? To whom? And why? Now you might say, well, that sounds like a lot of work. How do I gather that information? And you're right. However, we must realize we are the most blessed generation, the most blessed language group in the history of the church. No other era in church history has as many resources that are as accessible and popularly accessible as we do today. They didn't have it during the Reformation. They didn't even have it in the early centuries of the church. We have access to more than any other generation. And when we think of the fact that so much of this now is, is on computers and through the internet, and some of you are using phones and have it tremendous resources just on a phone, there's really no excuse why you can't get into this a little bit more. But even putting some of these things aside, let me give you some really practical resources that will help you in answering these questions of the authorship, who wrote it, uh, the date, when, the place, where, the audience to whom, and the circumstance, why. Well, think of your study Bibles. Your study Bibles. Now, this is amazing. The study Bible is an amazing invention, and I'll give you a little bit of a survey of, of study Bibles. But probably everyone here has a study Bible. Uh, and if you don't, and, and you want uh, some help with getting one, just come and, and talk to us, to either me, to Rodney, and we'll help you in that. But a study Bible is so very accessible. And, and how does a study Bible help? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. Probably most of you are not making the most of your study Bibles. Probably many of you are just treating a study Bible just as a regular Bible, and that's not wrong, but you're missing out on the kind of information that has been put there specifically to help you uh, with answering some of these questions about the book's historical background. So, for example, what I have here is, is a, uh, uh, a shot from the MacArthur Study Bible on the letter to the Romans. And if you look in your study Bible to the letter to the Romans, there is, before that, 
books, text, as is the case with every single book of the Bible, there is a section called the introduction. Every book of the Bible in a MacArthur study Bible and other good study Bibles today, every book of the Bible has one of these introductions. And notice what it covers. It covers the title. Why is it called Romans? Author and date. There, there you go. Where, and you read that in a very succinct form. You have a, a summary of the information that will help guide you as you get into the text. You have background and setting. There it deals with much of the issues related to the circumstance, the audience, and so on and so forth. And then you have historical and theological themes. Historical and theological themes. Some of the big issues that have, that, that have been raised by the letter to the Romans and then interpretive challenges. And it goes. So here is a challenge to you in your reading of the Bible this year. You may have never read these introductions before, but let me give you this counsel. As you read through books of the Bible, in whatever plan that you have to take you through the Bible in in however much time you want to give to it, before you start with 1 verse 1, take five minutes and review the introduction. That's going to be a a very big help to you as, as you continue reading. Now, just a little bit of a history on on study Bibles and why we are so blessed. Basically, the first study Bible is is what we'd call the Geneva Bible. It was put together about 450 years ago by some exiled pastors from Britain who went to Calvin's Geneva, and Calvin put them to work in putting together what is called the Geneva Bible. And it really was the first Bible ever to have notes. Now, Notice if you look uh, on the screen here, uh, you have a column of, of notes here on the side, one on the left, one on the right, and then look at the very top. This is a leaf of a, 19, or a 1578 edition of the Geneva Bible, and there's a paragraph right at the beginning that is called the argument, a summary of the, the circumstance, the purpose for this letter. So even 450 years ago, when, they, when the Protestant reformers were wondering how to minister to the people, they were putting together the first study Bible. As I said, it was first published in 1570. It was the first Bible to use verse numbering. They didn't have verse numbers before then. It had chapters, but not verses. It was the first Bible to have notes, to have commentary included with it, and different kinds of annotations. And it was... This Bible that became the Bible of the the 16th century Protestant movement, Puritanism, the Bible that was brought over by the pilgrims, so on and so forth. Very important, and it it emphasizes that even 450 years ago, those reformers knew that they wanted to get into into the hands, the, the Bible, not just in translated form, but also with helpful comments specifically about background issues. They did everything they could to make these Bibles as widely accessible as possible because they believed that this kind of information was not just something to be saved or or to be limited to the scholars. This was information that was to be put into the hands of laymen, people in the church. And, of course, it it is that conviction that really was 
so much of the fire of the, the Reformation to get the Bible and this kind of material into the hands of, uh, of regular Christians. Now, just a little bit more about study Bibles. Um, the next major event, really, on the calendar of study Bibles was then quite a long time after that, 1917. Anybody know what 1917 means, other than the Russian Revolution or the Soviet Revolution, whatever? Uh, 1917 was when Oxford, um, Oxford published the Schofield Study Bible. How many of you still have Schofield Study Bibles? Some of you do, yeah. That was 1917, and, and that was the next phase. In fact, uh, many scholars will say that from 1917, to we've been in the century of the Study Bible, and that was all really spawned by the Schofield Study Bible published by Oxford University, and it it led the way with the most extensive notes ever uh, that had ever been put into a Bible edition. And it really ruled the day until another important event in, in the history of study Bibles. And that was 1985, I think it was, 1985, when the NIV study Bible came out. And, and uh, I remember as a young, uh, young guy, I had been baptized uh, at age 15 and as a gift... To me, at my baptism, I was given by my church uh, an NIV study Bible, and that, st- that Bible, I still have it, uh, still is, is sentimental to me because that was the study Bible that really was, you know, uh, played a big part in my early years as a young Christian. And of course, the NIV study Bible, 1985, then kind of dominated until 1997, and in 1997... Another study Bible came out called the MacArthur Study Bible, which has been tremendously influential and helpful in the lives of so many others. Today, there are about a hundred different kinds of study Bibles that are out there. Massive number of study Bibles. All that to say is that this has been made accessible to you. And my challenge to you is don't neglect the great treasure that you have access to. It's in your hands. And, and the simple thing to do with that is when you begin to read through a book, take those five minutes to read carefully through that two-page or three-page introduction. It's very easy, a simple thing to do to introduce into your Bible reading plan. Now, beyond that, you might uh, look at uh, some other resources. I'll just mention these quick. Uh, if you want to do a little bit more, if you are uh, wanting to, to study deeper, then another kind of resource that'll be helpful here will be a survey of the Old Testament or a survey of the New Testament. These are, again, they're written at a popular level. Anybody in here would be able to pick one of these up and able to read it and understand it. It's written for you. And, uh, you know, these are helpful tools to have on the shelf. So if you're going to commit yourself to a detailed study of Romans or a detailed study of uh, of, of the Gospel of John or the book of Deuteronomy, well, get one of these resources, look for your book in it, and it won't just be a two-page introduction, it might be 15 pages or 10. But a nice thing about these resources too, there's a lot of pictures. So if you're like Rodney, you want them for the <laughs> pictures, and you got it. So lots of pictures, yeah. Knowing the historical context of a book, why is this so important? Why is it so important? 
Well, it prevents us from some kinds of serious interpretive errors. Let me just give you one example of this. Matthew chapter 1, you have this text uh, that is, is fascinating, Matthew 1, 18 to 19, where we read these words. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, that last verb there, to send her away, is the same word that's used for divorce. It, it refers to the, the, the dissolving of a marriage relationship. And you might think, well, wait a minute, I thought they weren't married yet. But if you don't take the time to study the background to Matthew and realize it was written by the Jew, Matthew, tax collector, to a Jewish audience, Matthew is, is, is referring here to the Jewish custom of betrothal, which is so much more serious than, in the Western culture, our custom of engagement. In fact, a betrothal was so strict that you had to break up, essentially, if you were going to break that up, you had to break it up with a certificate of divorce. Now, the couple wasn't married. They, they weren't living together. The, the, the marriage hadn't been consummated, but it was that serious. So understanding a little bit about Jewish culture, and this is a Jewish book written to a Jewish culture, helps you understand, deal with some of those issues. Let's move on to the next. Number six, identify the book's structure. So spend some time getting a, catching a glimpse of the, the book's historical background. The next thing to do is to look for the book's skeleton. Look for its structure. The faithful study of Scripture considers the particular manner in which the writer organized his writing. And the focus here is on recognizing the book's literary structure or outline. We're not talking about a preaching outline here or a teaching outline per se. What we want to get to is, is the basic structure of the book. How did the writer organize his Thoughts And this literary outline will remind you as a reader to consider how every individual paragraph, every individual text, how it relates to the bigger picture. Consider it to be like, like even a, uh, to use a different analogy, even like a, a, a road map. You know, if, if, if you're using a road map, okay, what's the structure? Where's the nearest freeway? And, and then we go down to the little details. We don't start with that address and and, and zoom in and try and figure out where everything is just by looking at, at all the little addresses around that particular address. We look at it in the big picture. Where are the freeways? Where are the points of reference? And reading and studying the Bible functions the same way. You want that roadmap. You want the skeleton so that you know what you're dealing with when you are in different parts of the Bible or parts of that book. Now again, where do you turn for this? You don't need to be a rocket scientist to, to figure this out. Again, go to your MacArthur study Bible or whatever study Bible that you're using. Uh, book outlines are, are pretty straightforward, and you're going to find pretty much a standard uh, 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 skeleton for each book in, in the different study Bibles that are out here or out, out in, the, in the world today. But consider again Romans. And so I've put a little snapshot here on the screen of, of the MacArthur study Bible's outline to Romans, and you'll see that it has eight parts. So you go through that and you realize, okay, the first part is from 1 to verse 1 
of chapter 1 to verse 15, that's the introduction, and then verses 16 and 17, that, that's the theme, and then 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20, and 321 to 521, 8 to, to the end of, uh, or 6 to the end of 8, and so on and so forth, you, you, you realize these are the major sections. Now, why is that important? How's that going to help you? And, and what I'd recommend that you do as well is as you're going through different books of the Bible, you're just reading through them. After you've read through the introduction and learned a little bit about the author and his background, put on a little note card the structure of the book and use that as your bookmark for going through the Bible if you're reading a paper Bible. Have that as a, as a, as a bookmark so that wherever you're reading, you always can have that bookmark that note card right there that has the outline and so you know exactly where you are located. Now let me give you an example of how this could help. So here I've put the outline on uh, kind of on a horizontal level and so if I've got this on a note card, I've taken it from a study Bible, put it on a note card, I've shoved it now in, in my Bible, I'm using that as I'm going through Romans and let's say the paragraph that I really want to focus on for today is, is uh, verses 10 to 18 of chapter 3. And so I read through that. It's that very powerful text on the depravity of man. There is no one righteous, not even one. And all those quotations from the Old Testament and, and leading up to that final statement, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And I can go through that and certainly it provides me with a lot of doctrine, a lot of meat right there. But then I take out my note card and I realize, well, this text is located in this part of the book, and therefore I read the paragraph in light of the focus of that section. It's on condemnation. And in particular, that section of Romans from 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20 is about the need for righteousness. Why, why righteousness is needed and and so it helps me realize as I read through chapter 3, verse 10 to 18, that Paul has written this to help his readers understand the need for God's righteousness. Just keep that outline handy, work on it uh, as you go through the book, and, and keep looking at it as a point of reference. Sometimes confusion over what you are reading occurs precisely because you lose your bearings you're lost. Your, your GPS has gone off. You've had that before probably where your phone dies just as you're trying to find a, an address or trying to get out of some place and your phone dies. Now what do I do? And you're stuck. Well, that happens in Bible reading sometimes precisely because we don't keep in mind that roadmap. Number seven, interpret according to paragraphs. Interpret according to paragraphs. Now, this might be natural to you. You you may have been taught in school to read according to paragraphs, and and maybe you've developed that habit and cultivated it, but there are a lot of people today who they just don't read that way. They read in terms of sentences or individual statements. And certainly, again, because of all the poor reading skills that are being taught in public schools today, this is being exasperated, especially among younger generations. What we have to do is is train ourselves to think in terms of paragraphs. The faithful study of Scripture focuses on full paragraphs rather than isolated sentences. Now, can you study an isolated sentence? Certainly. 
you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Certainly you can take that, memorize it, dwell upon that, and, and, and that's going to be a precious truth to hold on to. Memorize it, indeed. However, when it comes to, to working deeply in the Scriptures, one of the important rules is think in terms of bigger paragraphs. Sometimes our, our emphasis, even in some of the children's programs here, on, on memorizing Bible verses has created a propensity to take statements out of context. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? So I can become the next president of the United States. Uh, I can't. I just, I'm Canadian, so. <laughs> but it's that kind of memorization that would, well, maybe Christ could change my, I don't know, maybe he could change the Constitution, I guess. I, but the, uh, that, that kind of, the isolated memorization can create out-of-context ideas that can actually be turned into error. So what your responsibility is as a good Bible reader is begin to think in terms of paragraphs. Now, what is a paragraph? A paragraph is... Now, let me give you a dictionary definition, all right? A paragraph is a subdivision of written composition that consists of one or more sentences, deals with one point, or gives the words of one speaker and begins on a new, usually indented line. The idea here is it's one big idea. A paragraph contains a complete unit of thought. A complete unit of thought. Its contents are all interrelated. And indeed, sometimes a paragraph can be as small as one sentence. Other times it's much longer, and all of those other sentences are all working together. Some of those sentences, or one maybe, is making an exhortation or an assertion. Other sentences then are providing illustration, but it's one complete unit of thought. So when you do more deeper Bible study, not just broad reading, but you're studying more deeply, how how does this look? Well, you take a text here, I put a text on, it's not very well uh, presented here, but here's a text, this is the ESV of uh, Colossians 2. So I just, I put it on the screen. So let's say your goal was over the next week to really dig deeply into Colossians 2. What do you do? Well, what you do here is find a way to really demarcate the paragraphs And then it means you're going to make sure that as you work through this, you treat all of those sentences together within that unit as as a complete unit. You don't take things apart and, and, and treat them separately. You want to deal with things together. So find a good study Bible. This is nice about the ESV. Uh, it's a NASB, but here you're not going to be able to see the indentations as markers because every verse is indented. Instead, you have to look a little bit more carefully on these. You see that there's, there's uh, emboldened numbers, verse numbering. And so it's a little more subtle. How do you recognize a paragraph start? It's a little more subtle. You can't see it on the screen here so much, but if you have one of these Bibles, you'll notice that certain numbers are emboldened, and that is to mark a new paragraph. 
So that is then how you, you distinguish your, your paragraphs. And then that gives you a full unit. So if you're going to do deeper study, you're going to get into it uh, with, with more time and, and emphasis, then you deal with the whole unit. Just another picture here. Here's that leaf from the Geneva Study Bible of uh, 1578. They hadn't gone to paragraph breaks yet, so that's just us. There's no way of showing that there's paragraphs. This is First Peter, and there's a couple of paragraphs in the, in the first chapter, but the Geneva Bible still wasn't there yet in demarcating paragraphs. Now, some Bibles are still published like that today. Some Bibles still just, all they have is the numbering, no paragraphs, no headings, nothing. So how can you identify paragraphs? Let me give you a few key points on this. Number one, look for a unifying theme. When when all the sentences are dealing with the same issue, look for repeated words or repeated emphasized concepts. Number two, look for a change, a transition that's going to lead you from one context to another, from one topic to another, from one setting to another, especially in narratives, as you move from something happening in one place to another place. Look for a change in the timing. And one paragraph will talk about the past. Another paragraph will talk about the future or the present. Look for a change uh, of, of character. You'll have a, a person that is described in one section and then another person in another. Look for those kinds of changes. Number three, look for transitional words to help you identify these paragraphs. Maybe it's the word therefore, or the phrase now concerning, or maybe it's uh, in a narrative, a phrase like it came about. Something like that that'll help you recognize a shift. And then also look for direct addresses, things like beloved or brothers. Those direct addresses are often, not always, but often indicators that the writer is gathering back up the reader's attention and signaling that something new is coming from his pen at that particular moment. Now, why is this important? Well, I like what Bernard Ram says. He gives us a nice picture here for how paragraphs work. He says this, the material before the passage, call it the paragraph, is the radar which guides the approach And the following material is the radar of the leaving. And if we can track the material approaching and leaving the particular passage, we have found the framework in which the passage is to be understood. So there is a helpful explanation. When you recognize these passages and you look at how they relate to one another, it is often a key that helps you deal with with the more specific information within the paragraph itself. Now, we'll end at that for today. I just want to remind you even of 1 Thessalonians. And one of the things that is, is always the priority for me is, as I go through 1 Thessalonians or any text is to look at how these different paragraphs, uh, how they are demarcated, and then how they relate to one another. It's not just paragraphs thrown on a page. They're all put in different order. And so my, my objective is not just to deal with the contents of a paragraph, but also see the flow. And when I see the flow, it helps better with the parts. All right. Well, we will end with that for today. And uh,
Trust you'll have a great week. See you next Sunday.